Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 17. As we continue to look at what's been called the high priestly prayer, this morning we're focusing on verses 6 through 10 and we will read only those verses for, for the sake of time. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as you're finding your place there, and, and then we'll pray for the Lord's help as we, as we mine these verses for glorious truth. John 17, verses 6 through 10. This is the Lord praying again, once again, praying for us. The Lord Jesus prays. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning you would do one thing, just one thing, and that is open our eyes to the glory of being owned. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Occasionally, I, I've, I find it interesting and, and sometimes humorous to, to think about the slang terms that teens come up with, particularly the derogatory ones to describe one another. Like the, the term extra. Have you, you've heard the word extra? I mean, I know you know what it means in colloquial English, but are you familiar with the slang usage? That girl is so extra. You've heard this? Now, context clues will generally tell you what it means, and, and you would think, well, if somebody tells me I'm extra, that just means I'm more than is needed. You would think, well, that's a good thing. No, what they mean is, you are so unnecessary that you're unwanted, get away from me. Now, the, the irony is that most adults, because of all of the responsibilities that we have and the demands on our time, that's like music to our ears. So you're at at a a church event volunteering or you're at a school event volunteering, even a work project that you're involved in or something that needs to be done at home and somebody says, you're extra, go away. What would you think? Praise God, I'm going to go take a nap. I mean, an adult would love to hear their extra. There's another word out there, and this one seems to be falling out of favor a little bit, and the word is owned. Owned. So-and-so got owned. That dude got owned. And that one, if you follow the context clues, generally means they either got beat up or 
insulted in some way. They've been humiliated. Now, that would some, kind of make sense. I mean, you, because if you, look, if you look at history on somebody being owned, like slavery, I mean, that, that's a humiliating thing. That is a humiliating thing. And that, that one makes sense somewhat. Now, I would like, I would, I would love, and I've been praying that as we leave this place this morning, we would have a completely different understanding of that word, owned. That all of us would leave here this morning wanting to wear that term on us. That, that we would no longer think of that. The teens, adults no longer think of that as a bad thing, but we want to be owned. We, we, we receive that as our identity. If we, if we take seriously what the Lord Jesus has said in John 17, verses 6 through 10, we should understand that being owned by Jesus Christ is the greatest thing imaginable. In fact, it is the fountain of every desirable blessing possible. You cannot have eternal life unless you are owned by Jesus Christ and the Father. There is no hope for joy unless you are owned by someone. And the, ironically, there is this thing down in the wicked human heart that wants to push off ownership by anyone. I don't want anybody to own me, including God. Listen, we should desire ownership by God because it is such a wonderful blessing and it is the fountain of all blessings. We are owned by Jesus Christ. All the blessings of salvation flow from that reality from eternity past. Let me explain how these verses that we've just read fit into the larger context of John 17. John 17 is a prayer of petition. And we know that because the word for prayer in verse 9 is actually the word ask. Jesus is asking things of the Father. The first petition was in verse 1 where the Lord said, Father, glorify the Son. He repeats that again in verse 5 saying the same thing again. But we don't get the second petition until verse 11 which, Lord willing, we'll look at next time. So we could think of the verses that we just read as like a petition drought. He's not asking for anything in these verses. So what is he doing? Well, verses 6 through 10 that we've just read that we're spending our time on this morning, these are the grounds for the petition that's coming in verse 11. They give the reasons why Jesus is asking what he's asking. They give the reasons why the Father should do what Jesus is asking him to do. And I would summarize the ground in verse 6 through 10. I would summarize it this way. Father, look at everything that I have invested in my disciples. And my paraphrase of the, the petition that comes in verse 11 and following would be this. Father, please guard my investment. Look at everything that I've invested and please guard that investment. Now, why has Jesus invested in those whom he's invested? Why those particular ones? Throughout this passage, underlying the whole thing is this truth. He has invested in those whom he's invested in because we are his and the Father's. In these five verses, five verses, there are seven references to our being owned. He invests in us because we belong to him. We're, we're, we're doing something a little bit unusual this morning. I'm going to give you all of the points of the message right now. That may be somewhat frustrating to some of us because we don't like change. Others may be wondering, well, what do we have to look forward to now? 
now we just have to listen. Uh, I, I understand I understand that, I get it, but there's a good reason to do this. It's because these points that we're deriving from the text, they're so closely intertwined that it's virtually impossible to talk about one of them without also talking about the other, okay? So I'm going to ask you to bear with me, and we'll, we'll, we'll do it this way. Just Well, I, I can't say that we'll never do it this way again, but, but we're doing it this way this morning, okay? So point number one in your notes, Jesus has given a particular revelation to us. He's given a particular revelation to us. Point number two, we have given a particular response to him. We've given a particular response to him. Point number three, all of this is because of his particular ownership of us. All of it is because of his particular ownership of us. Now we're using this word particular here to mean something that distinguishes us from the world. Jesus reveals the Father to us in a way that He does not reveal the Father to the world. And we respond to the revelation that we've been given in a way that the world does not respond to that same revelation. And Jesus owns us in a way that He does not own the world. There's a particularity to all of this And all of that particularity is tied to the fact that we are owned by Jesus. And we'll see each of these points popping up repeatedly as we go through the text, okay? So let's look first at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. I have manifested your name. Now turn with me back to, all the way back to the beginning of the book, 118. There John tells us in 118, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now first there, John is talking about the Father. When he says no one has seen God, he's talking about the Father. No one, no one has ever seen the Father. No one knows exactly what he is like. But then if you look after the, the semicolon, he says the only God who was at the Father's side, there he's talking about Jesus, the Son. He's calling Jesus God. So he refers to the Father as God, and he refers to the Son as God, without referring to them by different names, in order to indicate to us that they have identical character. Okay, And yet, it's clear they're not the same person. No one has ever seen the Father... The Son who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Jesus is identical in character to the Father and therefore shows what the Father's like. That is why Jesus said in John 14, we've we've repeated this numerous times, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And throughout the book, Jesus has said things like, I do the works of the Father. When you see me doing things, you're seeing His works. When I say words, you're hearing me say His words. And when Jesus says in 17.6, I have manifested your name, he's just using different words to echo what John said back in 118. He's just saying, I have made you known. But the question is, to whom has he made the Father known? And the next phrase in 17.6 answers that question. He says, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Throughout the book of John, we have this theme of the particularity of Jesus' revelation of the Father. 
Now, it's not that Jesus never said anything to the rest of the Jews about, about himself that would indicate who he was. On the contrary, we'll, we'll see shortly here that Jesus gave a truckload of evidence to everybody about who he was. Jesus was spreading all over the place the words and the works and the character of the Father. In a sense, he showed everybody the Father. But there's another sense in which he only revealed, truly opened the minds of certain ones to see the truth of who the Father was and who were those people to whom he gave that exclusive particular access. Jesus manifested himself in the Father to those whom the Father gave him out of the world. That is distinct from the world. The implication of verse 6 is that Jesus revealed the Father not to everyone in the world, but to specific ones from the world, to the disciples. Now, why would Jesus manifest the name of the Father in this fuller sense to the disciples and not in that same fuller sense to the rest of the world? The next phrase in verse 6 tells us, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now, there's the first glimpse that we get of that third point that I gave you a moment ago, all right? The Son invests in us because we are particularly owned by the Father and the Son. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now, we know, we know based upon numerous passages in the Scriptures, that God owns all things. God owns all men. Psalm 24 says this very clearly. But there's another sense in which God owns certain people, a sense in which he does not own others. And we see this most clearly in the paradigm set for us in Old Testament Israel. Israel held a distinct place in the heart of God by his election, not theirs. He chooses some to make his own in a particular way. Before the foundation of the world, he determined which ones would be his for all eternity. This is incontrovertible truth. He decided These ones will be mine. He gave them to the Son as His own, so the Son cares for them as His own. And you could trace this, not just here in this one verse of John 17, but you could trace it through chapters 6 and 8 and 10 in John especially, but it's integral to the whole storyline of the Bible. Jesus made a particular revelation to us because of His particular ownership to us. And then the next phrase in 17.6 shows a true disciple's particular response. Jesus says, finally, and they have kept your word. They have kept your word. On the surface, the most natural way to understand that is that they have obeyed. They've obeyed. And that may make us a little bit nervous because salvation, we know, is by grace, through faith, not by works. But if we have a full-orbed theology, we know that our by grace through faith salvation results in obedience. Our obedience does not cause our salvation, but our by grace through faith salvation causes obedience. Okay, so now just in this first verse, we've seen all three of the points of the message. And we're going to continue to see them as we continue through these verses, all right? So look at verse 7 with me. The Lord says, now they know everything that you've given me is from you. The disciples know that the source of everything that Jesus has is the Father. Now, what is everything? He says everything in the original language. Everything whatsoever that I have 
is, is, is from you. They, the disciples know this, but what is that everything? Well, there's numerous references in John to Jesus receiving words from the Father. There are, there are many references to him receiving works from the Father. So the disciples know that Jesus' teaching and the things that he does, they not only come from the Father, but they were commanded by the Father. So Jesus hasn't sent himself. He's not on his own mission. But Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible, he sent Jesus and gave Jesus his words and his works to do. Now, is there anything else, anything else in John that, that we see the Father giving to the Son that we would include in that everything? Well, we'd have to be blind just, just from John 17 to miss that there's something here that he's given to the Son mentioned seven times. The disciples themselves so the, the, the disciples know that they themselves have been given from the Father to the Son. They, they know that the difference between them and all the other Jews who have rejected Jesus is that the Father gave them to Jesus. They know then His words, His works, and even they themselves have been given from the Father to the Son. Now, why do they know this? Why do they know that? We're returning again to the first point of our message, followed quickly by the other points. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Why do they know the things that they, that they know? Because of the words that Jesus gave them. Jesus revealed these things to them. Jesus did something definitive in them. That's point number one that I've already given you. But we don't want to act as if the rest of verse 8 is parenthetical, and we don't really want to pay attention to it. The rest of verse 8 shows their particular response, which is our second point. We give a particular response. They responded in a particular way, distinct from the world. They responded in a way that everyone else does not. They, they received those words from Jesus. They, they, they've loved these words. And we're, we're going to see this in John chapter 6 here shortly. They came to know in truth that He came from the Father. And they believed that not just that He's from the Father, but that the Father actively sent Him to do the things that He's, that he's done. Listen, no one is saved apart from that real particular response to the gospel. No one is saved apart from volitional repentance and faith. And when we repent and believe, we do not do so as robots or puppets. We do so as free creatures doing what we most want to do. And that is the most biblical, most logical understanding of freedom. We are free when we do what we most want to do. No one is ever dragged kicking and screaming to the cross, forced to trust in a Christ that they find repulsive. When we repent and trust, it's because we find Him most desirable. It's because it's what we most want to do. But here's the important question. At the moment of salvation, why is repentance and faith what we most want to do? Why is it that we want to do that? Or we could ask the opposite question, which is just as helpful, perhaps more helpful. Why is it that repentance and belief is not what the world wants to do? Why is it that repentance and belief is not what the perishing ever want to do? 
Is it because they haven't heard this great message that, that we've heard and respond, responded to? In, in the case of the Jews in the book of John, is it that they did not believe because Jesus didn't tell them who he was? Turn, turn with me over to John chapter 10, please. We're going to go over to John 10. We'll begin reading in, in verse 24. John 10, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now this, if, if, if you read just straight through John, that verse should make you laugh audibly. How, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us plainly. Listen, it's not at all that Jesus has been vague up to this point. He's been very clear. In chapter 5, he said, all that stuff that Moses wrote, every bit of it about me. In John chapter 6, he said, I'm the true bread that came out of heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. In John chapter 7, he stood up in the midst of the feast and said, anyone who's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In John chapter 8, he called himself the I am, a reference that was so clear that those who heard him picked up stones to stone him to death. So by the time we get to chapter 10, there has been no ambiguity. There's no ambiguity at all. Jesus has left no one in suspense. It's obvious what he's been saying. What's clear is they don't want to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The question is why? Why don't they want to believe? Because he's been offering eternal life. Everybody wants eternal life. Why don't they want to believe Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. And he's saying, I told you who I am. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. John 10, 26 is of monumental importance. Ultimately, when someone doesn't believe, why is it? They do not believe because they are not of his sheep. Now, you can feel free to look at your neighbor's Bible. Make sure that yours isn't a misprint. It's not that it's supposed to say, you're not among my sheep because you don't, you don't believe and you just got a bad copy of the ESV or whatever you're looking at. No, you're reading it correctly. They do not believe because they do not belong to him. And this is not just one obscure passage where we're going to take one little verse and, and make a whole theology out of it. The, the, John is, is full of this kind of talk. It's in John 17. We're finding it here in John 10. We could go back to 843. Turn with me there if you'd like to. Again, Jesus asks and answers a very similar question. He says to the Jews in 843, Why do you not understand what I say? It's very similar to saying, why do you not believe what I'm saying about myself? Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why do you not understand? Now listen, the ESV renders Jesus' answer differently than all other major translations. It, it, it says, you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, now that is more of an interpretation than a translation. Look at any other modern translation and you'll see a more literal, in my opinion, better reading. The New American Standard answers the question, because you cannot hear my word. Young's literal translation reads, because you are not able to hear my word. Why don't they understand? They're not able. 
Why aren't they able? Why aren't they able? Jesus explains in the next verse. Look at 844. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They, they don't belong to Jesus and the father, but they belong to the God of this world. Their wills are enslaved to sin. The devil's desires are their desires. Sin and rebellion is what they most want. And it can't be otherwise until they are rescued, until, until they are, by the power of God, transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now we could go back, we could go back further. We could go back to John chapter 6. Let's go back to John chapter 6. Now free food, free food draws a crowd, doesn't it? I've seen a lot of you out at Prasco. Now I'm just there for the baseball. It's not at all about the free hamburgers and hot dogs. I just love baseball. If I put away a burger or two, it's just to be sociable. But some people are all about free food. And that's the case in John 6. These people got a free meal from Jesus. That's the feeding of the 5,000, which we know would have been many more than that because the 5,000 was just the men. But they realized free food, we have a chuck wagon in Jesus. So they found Jesus the next day. And it's not in the same location. They went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get to him. And look at, look at verse 27. Jesus calls them out on this. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now think about this. So Jesus has busted them for just being interested in food. But then he offers them eternal life. Eternal life. He he had done enough signs up to that point, including feeding them all with one person's lunch. He'd done enough up to that point to demonstrate to them he is the Messiah. But they don't believe. How is it possible that they don't believe? Even with everything that they've seen. How is it possible that they don't want eternal life enough that they would take what he's offering through faith in him? Well, in verse 36 and following, Jesus does the same thing that he does in chapters 8 and 10. He exposes their unbelief and then tells them why they don't believe. Look at verse 36 with me. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And the point is the same as in chapters 8 and 10. They don't believe. And the reason they don't believe is because they have not been given to Jesus. And that reality, what Jesus says there, is played out in dramatic fashion over the course of the rest of John chapter 6. Jesus continues saying magnificent things about himself. I am the bread of life that came down of heaven. The bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. He's offering eternal life to people. All you have to do is believe in me. Trust in me. Give your life to me. I mean, don't people want to live forever? Doesn't everybody want to live forever? Wouldn't you expect people to at least ask some questions? But there is no curiosity All they do is get angry. The the crowd is dwindling and dwindling and dwindling as Jesus talks. In in verse 65, Jesus says, almost as an editorial comment on the whole scene, he says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's been granted him by the Father. And in the very next verse, verse 66, we read that many, even of his disciples, 
withdrew from him and were not walking with him anymore. So this crowd starts out many thousands of people. And Jesus preaches that crowd down to 12 men by saying true things about himself. Not even hard things about himself. By offering eternal life through himself. Now look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Look, look at the words in Simon's response. They coincide with what Jesus says about the disciples in John 17, verses 7 and 8. We believe. We've come to know. Now, the, the disciples hear different things than everyone else did that day. No, they, they heard the same message. What's the difference between this 12 and the many thousands that walked away? They belong to Jesus. Or as Jesus put it in verse 65, they came to Jesus because it had been granted them by the Father. Or as Jesus put it in verse 37, they came to Jesus because the Father gave them to Jesus. They are owned by Jesus from eternity past. You see, it's not that the world doesn't receive the message in any sense. It's that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The, the, the same message, nonsense to one group. To the other group, it's, it's a delight. And it's because He gives ears of faith to His own. I want to go back to just, just a small, seemingly inconsequential word in John 17 at the beginning of verse 7. So let's go back to John 17, verse 7. Just a little word, now. Now they know. Now they've received and believed. You know, it's not always been the case since, since they were born that they knew all these things about Jesus and believed all these things about Jesus. If Jesus' disciples believe... And they believe because they belong to Him. This would imply what Scriptures tell us explicitly elsewhere. He gives faith and repentance to His own. If, if only they repent and believe, if only His own repent and believe, and they inevitably repent and believe, He must be the one that gives it. And that's what we find explicitly taught to us in places like Ephesians 2, verses 8 and following. Philippians 1.29, Acts 11.18, Acts 13.48, 2 Timothy 2.25. When one of his own believes, it's because he gives it. He gives belief. Formerly, that person disbelieved, but now, now, the person believes. You can go back to that beautiful picture of this in John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's what happens. That's what happens. I think of Aaron Nix's testimony that he shared with us at Men's Reveille last Saturday. Aaron was listening to a sermon by Ray Comfort that he'd listened to a million times and he had, he'd listened to it so many times he practically had this sermon memorized. He knew, he knew the sermon. He knew the gospel. He'd grown up in church. 
What happens when you know a song or a movie or, or a speech that well? You tune it out. And that's what he was doing that night. You, you tune it out. Did Aaron decide, you know what, I think tonight's the night. I think I'll believe it this time. Not if you ask Aaron. That's not what happened. It was just another evening, but out of, out of nowhere, the guilt and condemnation of his sin began to bear down on his soul. In this message that he'd heard a hundred times, bear down on his soul and he couldn't take it anymore. And He cried out for help. And from that day forward, a previously rebellious young man was changed. You see, the Spirit of Christ decided now is the time. I think of, I think of Kyle Lamb. Kyle Lamb. Kyle wasn't a seeker. He, 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 he believed. He, he knew he was going to hell. He'd heard the gospel a hundred times. He'd heard it all growing up. He knew Jesus was the answer. Just like these people in John chapter 6, he knew Jesus was the answer. He just wasn't interested. How do you explain that? You know you're going to hell. You know the answer, that Jesus is the answer. How do you explain indifference in the face of that? You see this all the time, Dave Dorman, don't you? People believing that they're going to hell, and they know that Jesus is the answer. They do not repent and believe. How do you explain that? This is, this is, what, this is what Kyle Lamb experienced. He knew the answer. Completely uninterested. He was not on a spiritual journey. Kyle Lamb was a young punk strung out on video games. And then one day he woke up transformed. Transformed. Not from a new gospel presentation, but from past gospel, uh, past gospel presentations that he was trying to forget. The Spirit of Christ decided, now is the time. Why? Because Kyle Lamb's owned, owned from eternity past. Now, everyone's conversion is different. Some of us do wrestle with the gospel for an extended time. Some of us do think deeply about it. Some of us are on a spiritual journey and we're looking for answers when, when, when we find the Lord. But all of that is at His instigation. He opens blind eyes. He is the one who takes this foolish gospel and makes it glorious to us. Listen, read, read Jeremiah 1.5 where, where, where God says to the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's biblical knowledge mentioned there. That's not cognitive awareness. It's I knew you, I loved you because you're mine before I formed you in the womb. And think of the wondrous things written about David in Psalm 139 where he testifies about himself. You knew me from the womb. Paul writes about himself in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, that God set him apart even from before that he was born. Brothers and sisters, these, these biblical figures, in, in that regard, they are not special. Because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, actually echoes the prayer of Jesus Christ in, in, in John 17, saying that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us. That is why Christ loves us. That is why Christ condescended to save us. That is why Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth. That's why Jesus went to the cross and spilled every drop of his blood. Why God raised him from the dead. Why we've received the indwelling Holy Spirit. Why we know what we know. Why we've received what we've received. Why we believe what we believe. All because 
ultimately we belong to him. And so then verses 9 and 10 in John 17 make perfect sense. Look there with me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. In verses 6 through 8, Verses 6 through 8, Jesus told the Father how He's invested in the disciples, in us, and, and how those who belong to Him, how they've responded. The precious message that the Father has entrusted to the Son and He's entrusted to the disciples, they've received it as their own. And, and so now He's very clear, these are the ones that I'm praying for, Father. The petition that He gets to in verse 11, He wants to be very clear, I'm praying this for, for these particular ones. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who are mine Why would he pray for them specifically? He summarizes the grounds at the end of verse 9 and into verse 10. He summarizes it. And I'm going to read you my translation to give you a sense of, of how he's summarizing what he's already said. Why is he praying for them specifically? Because yours they are, and all mine are yours, and yours mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now there's there's just so much that could be said here, but I've already said so much. Let me just pick one thing that that has not been touched on yet. It's the idea of our glorifying Jesus. The the, the verb tense here is really important. He says, I have been glorified in them. Not I am glorified or I will be glorified. I have been. It's perfect tense. I have been glorified in them. Striking given how imperfect the disciples are depicted in this gospel. But this passage juxtaposes the disciples not with what they're going to be after the resurrection. You remember, Peter has not even yet denied Christ three times. Jesus is saying, I have been glorified in Him. But this passage juxtaposes the disciples not with what they're going to be, but juxtaposes them with how the world has responded to Jesus. Certainly we and the original 11, we, we don't love perfectly. We don't believe perfectly. We don't flawlessly image the character of Christ. Neither we nor the eleven. But like the disciples in John chapter 6, we're distinguished from the world in that while the world has found the gospel to be nonsense and offensive by God's grace, we have come to know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Our our very existence as believers glorifies Jesus Christ. Our very existence as His own glorifies Him. Our very existence as a body of former haters whom He has redeemed by His blood and who He is sanctifying by His Spirit glorifies Him and has glorified Him. You glorify Him simply by virtue of the fact that He owns you. Sometimes the best application of a message is Think on these things. And I would say that's the case here. To think that this is a soaking message. Just soak in these things. What a wonder. What a blessing to be owned by Christ. He opened our eyes. And we believed. And that belief was real and volitional. We wanted to do it. But He gave it to us as a gift All because we are His. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. And He lived and died for sinners so that through repentance and faith, they might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And those who have never repented and trusted in Jesus, repenting means turning from sin, 
and surrendering everything to Christ and trusting in Him means not trusting in self but completely in His righteous life and atoning death. Those who have not done those things, repentance and trust, they are under the wrath of God even now. And many, many might hear this, this, this message, particularly those who have not repented and trusted and feel somewhat hopeless thinking, well, I don't know if I'm owned by Christ. I don't know. What do I do? And I remember counseling a woman years ago in that situation. She believed everything that I've said in this message. She believed in this, this doctrine of election that, that, that the Lord owns people. She also believed that she had never repented and trusted in Christ. She knew that she had not. Now her conclusion, she took those two things and put them together and she concluded, I guess I just have to wait until he gives me repentance and faith. Do you know what the Bible says to those who know that they've not trusted and repented in Christ? It nowhere says, do your best to determine if you're owned by Christ. Do your best to determine if you are elect. The Bible says one thing to those who are under the condemnation of God, to those who have not repented and trusted in Jesus. It says this, repent and trust in Christ and do it now. Do it now. And if you do, you will be saved. If you have any questions about that, Please talk to somebody. The elders are available to talk. We'd love to talk to you. You've got people all around you who could answer questions, but don't leave here without those questions being answered. Let us pray together. Father, our sinful human condition would move us to despise the thought of being under the control of another, being owned by another in any sense. Father, I pray that we would take that word owned, hold it fast to our chest and cherish it as our identity. We are owned by you, Father. You're owned by your Son, Jesus Christ. By virtue of that, we have been graced with every blessing in the heavenly places. Father, would you move us then to live lives of grace and obedience that bring glory to you, our gracious Father, that magnify the love of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that propel us to share this gospel of grace with every soul in the world that you might call out of the world your own. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.